0: Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as Thomas uh, prayed and Fuji mentioned, uh, Fuji and I uh, will be going to Africa uh, beginning Monday. And, um, you know, one of the incredible blessings about being in Africa is that I've had the opportunity to preach in a church. And you have to understand, church in Africa, specifically in the areas where hands at work ministers, it is quite different than the one that we are sitting in right now. It's usually a small little structure that's out of clay and maybe like a... a corrugated steel metal top, or sometimes even straw, uh, with clay. And there's these wooden benches that have been constructed, uh, very topsy-turvy, you might say. And I'm standing here like this, and pretty much everyone who's looking at me, they're incredibly poor. Uh, They are, ethnically speaking, mostly black faces that I see and quite different than me. And so when I am preaching, I'm always thinking about how do I preach in a way in which these people who have a literally a world's difference of worldview from what I am living today, how do I speak to someone like that? How do I speak to people who are suffering so dearly and yet still here wanting to hear this message. You know what I would preach? And I was thinking about this because I know I'm going to be asked. And George, the way that he does it is that he doesn't give me a heads up. He doesn't say, okay, Sam, you're going to be preaching in one week's time. What happens almost every time is that we will get there and then literally five minutes before he'll say, Sam, you're preaching today. And I'm like, oh, man. So I, this time I thought, I'm going to just in case prepare a sermon in my mind of what to preach. And you know what I'm going to choose? John 3.16. You know, here's the thing about this passage. It crosses all barriers. It stands the test of time. It speaks to people regardless of who they are. And here's the incredible power of this verse. It's that it makes me no better, no wiser, no smarter than a single person before me whether they have advanced degrees and PhDs and medical degrees, or whether they have never even gone to school, they don't know how to read, John 3.16 can speak to any one of those people, any one of us. And so I really want you to look afresh again at this verse and see its power over our lives over the impact of the way that we can live and how we see and view the world, even in the midst of darkness and pain. And recognize that because of John 3.16, there is hope. No matter how dark the situation, both in your own household, as well as globally, there's always hope because of John 3.16, of these precious words that Jesus has given to us. Again, as Martin Luther has said, the gospel in miniature. So last week, we looked at the extravagance of God's love. And as well, we looked at the extent of God's grace. And this week, we're going to look at three more aspects of this verse. The enormity of God's sacrifice, the exclusivity of God's gospel, and the eternity of God's salvation. First, the enormity of God's sacrifice. In that phrase that Angie read, that he gave his only son, I'm not going to cover the real expansive uh, significance of this phrase, only son. It actually will take much more than even today's message to do that. There's a lot to say about that subject. But what I want to do is focus on what essentially it's saying is that there is a sacrifice here. And the sacrifice is far more than we can fully grapple with or understand, because most of us understand sacrifice to some extent. For example, if you as a mother were to, if someone were to break into your house and a thief, a murderer comes in and is threatening your children, you might sacrifice your life for your children, putting yourself into harm's way to protect your child. That is an incredible sacrifice. It's a real sacrifice. But it's an expected sacrifice. So while we might be amazed by it, we're not flabbergasted. We're not thinking, how can this happen? Because in some ways, that's sort of how mothers should be for their children. It's actually the opposite that we get more astounded by is when a mother doesn't do that. Also, I was uh, watching a movie a while ago. It's called Hacksaw Ridge. And it tells the true accounting of Desmond Doss Desmond Doss was a Christian. He refused to take up arms. And so he was terribly mocked out, as you can imagine, because this is during World War II and everyone's drafted, and He didn't. he was a pacifist. He didn't want to bear arms. And so his unit really treated him miserably, terribly mocked him, despised him, actually, for not taking up arms and fighting. He decided instead of being a soldier... To be a platoon medic, and so during the Battle of Okinawa, there was a one particular fierce battle where they had to, the soldiers had to climb an escarpment, and on top of it, they had to take uh, the the position where enemy soldiers were sort of overrunning it, and the soldiers were being mowed down. They really, it was really hopeless. It was to the point where the leaders declared retreat, so they actually had to go down the escarpment again, repelling down. But as you can imagine, so many soldiers were injured during that time. And during battlefields where soldiers are being wounded, they, their first instinct is to cry out for a medic. Desmond Doss was that medic. So he goes, and rather than escaping with his life, he goes and literally drags and carries 25 wounded soldiers down the escarpment one by one, and then go back up, go into the battlefield, grab the next person, go down. I mean, he was incredibly uh, courageous and won essentially the, the greatest medals of valor. So you might say that's a tremendous act of sacrifice. It is. But it's still for soldiers that are part of your platoon your army your nation the thing about god's sacrifice according to this verse is that this sacrifice and as we see throughout scripture is not for someone who loves us back or someone who is part of our our platoon our army according to scripture god's sacrifice is for people who had no love for him, who are his enemies, who are, as Ephesians 2.3 says, objects of God's wrath. And the reason we are objects of God's wrath is that we don't want anything to do with him apart from Christ. That we actually don't care for him at all. We don't want to follow him. We don't want to trust him. Martin Luther, when he describes this sacrifice, he says, he has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Those are the people who are Christians, people who deserve, who are in disgrace, who are wretched, who are enemies, and who want nothing to do with God. That's who God gave his son for. Christians, we know this about ourselves. If you are truly in Christ, you actually know what it means to be an enemy of God, and you're usually the first to admit, I was like that once. God gave his only son. He gave a son for our ultimate eternal survival. He gave a son for our eternal joy and benefit. So, if God did this for us, how could we ever say God is not kind or good or loving or merciful? In this way, his sacrifice is truly enormous beyond words. Second is that we see that this gospel of God's is exclusive. That whoever believes in him should not perish. So it's not whoever open, but whoever believes in him. Now, in this phrase, there's both an invitation, but there's also exclusivity. And we need to look at both to understand what John and ultimately what Jesus is saying through this phrase. The word whoever is an open invitation. It's meant to say that regardless of where you've come from. So if I am preaching this message in Africa to mostly people who are absolutely impoverished and uneducated, who have lost loved ones, children, this message is to say, this message is for you, whoever. You know, it's not just for the people who are living in San Ramon who have a really professional career and who make a certain amount of money or educate and understand things. This gospel is open to everyone, regardless of social class and intellect and ability and financial resources and age and marital status. At any point in your life, it is open. It is open to all people, but at all times. That means that even if You are taking your very last breath. The gospel is open to you. We see that on the cross with the thief on the cross. So there is no one who is beyond hope. The gospel is open to those who are physically and mentally unable. If you happen to have a parent who has dementia or Alzheimer's, if they're suffering from that, share the gospel with them. Make sure you do it. And if you don't do it because you think there's no way they can understand that, I tell you, that is more that says more about you than it is, says about them. Because this God of ours is able to bring the dead to life. I mean, think about that for a moment. If we believe, as uh, we talk about Holy Week and Easter and the resurrection, a person who is dead came to life. So how can we really say, oh, they're so far gone that they cannot understand the gospel? The Holy Spirit can break through that heart, that mind. As confused and enmeshed and webbed as it is, the Lord can break through. So I challenge you, if you have parents who are older, who are decaying in their mind, it is a perfect time to share the gospel of Jesus with them. And you need to do it. And the older they get, and if they are debilitated, lying in the bed, they can't go anywhere. You know, that's actually a good time to share the gospel. Let it not be because you were scared, or because you didn't have faith, you believed they were too far gone, or because their whole life they were angry and they were encrusted over in their hearts. No, no because of John three sixteen, you say, I will share Christ with that person. It's your father, your mother. If a person has been born without a brain, if a child in the womb that so much of the world says is not a child, that child can know Christ. Because you know what? John the Baptist in the womb leaped when the Mary came with Jesus in the womb I mean, that just speaks volumes as to how much a person can even understand, even in that state. The person in a vegetative state. The person born without a brain. The mass murderer. So all sins, anyone, no matter the darkest of sin, whoever believes in him, the mass murderer. I know we don't want to think, well, you know, how can a mass murderer be saved? They can be a slave trader a homosexual a transgender a cheater an adulterer a gambling addict a porn addict everyone according to Romans 10:13 everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved and think about it this way Jesus spent so much time with prostitutes and tax collectors so much so so that, He actually started getting a reputation where people started calling him a drunkard and a glutton. A glutton is not just about food. It's about any appetite. So sex, um, anything, anything that you cannot control. So probably he was getting a reputation of, oh, maybe he's actually spending time with these prostitutes and it's not just platonic. Can you imagine that? He's hearing perhaps those things. The disciples perhaps are hearing those things and they're probably thinking, Jesus, you're supposed to be a holy person. You're supposed to be a rabbi. Don't spend time with those people because you're going to get a reputation as someone who is engaging in those things. And that was happening. And Jesus is saying, you know, I came to seek and save the lost. And that's why I came. So we must never say those people are not people we should associate with. In fact, it should be we're diving deep into that realm because we believe with all of our heart that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So my friends, we need to have a deep understanding of God's grace, and God's grace is that this, if he can save someone like me, that means he can save anyone. This is incredible news for us in the church because we actually believe the gospel's power to transform lives. And we never ever think that person is beyond it. You never give up telling people about Jesus, no matter how resistant or hard-hearted they appear. And I know some of us have very hard-hearted people in their lives. We just in our hearts have this unbelief to say there's no way they will turn. Think about that person in your life who you've had communication with, who has said, some of the worst things about Christ, maybe they've used his name in vain, they've said all these things. God can do an amazing work. He can. I heard a story just this week of the redemptive power of reconciliation in owning sin and seeing even marriages that seem impossibly being able to be restored to be restored. Again, Revival happens not because a bunch of holy people start praying a lot. Revival happens because a bunch of sinners realize the depth of their sin and their need for Christ. And then people respond to that, because the world says, "Wow, if it can save people like you, it can maybe I have a chance. That's revival." And so we have to realize this invitation is open to everyone, but There's also, interestingly enough, an exclusivity about this invitation, even though it's open. We are told that whoever believes in him, it's not just whoever, it's whoever believes in him. Peter explains what this means in Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And of course, Jesus expands on this in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, the world hates this about Jesus, actually. They love the fact that Jesus is a good teacher. He's moral. He sort of has a lot together. But when it comes to exclusivity, it's, why does he have to say that? Because we want to be like Buddha to say that, well, all religions and all faiths, you can actually have some sort of nirvana, some sort of enlightenment. You can worship all things and all creatures, and suddenly everything will be good, everything will be okay. But to say that there's only one way, that's outrageous. It is the one area of the gospel that the world despises. Now, here's the our side of the exclusivity. I want to present this is that, Sadly, exclusivity sometimes can lead to our arrogance. If you've ever gone and maybe you go to the street and you see a a roadside preacher, and often there's a placard, and the placard is all of you are being judged by God and you're going to hell unless you believe in Jesus. Is the statement true? Yes. Is that what needs to be presented as the first outlook on what it means to be in Christ? It shouldn't be, actually. Exclusivity should not lead to arrogance, but it leads actually to more humility. We do not take the message of the gospel and tell the world and all religions, I have this gospel and you're all going to hell. I mean, that is exactly the opposite of what the gospel teaches. Just to Explain this well. I want to quote Tim Keller on this. He has a, a good, it's a little longer quote, but I think he describes well why having this exclusivity actually causes us to be more humble as Christians, not less. If you're a secular relativist, you're arrogant. You feel superior to people who aren't. If you are a religious person who believes you're saved because you're a good person, you're going to be Superior to the secular person or the other religion or the irreligious people. If you're a Christian, you are saved by grace. And when you talk to an atheist or a Buddhist, you know that this person is likely better than you. You're not saved because you're better, you're saved because of grace. Christianity, in other words, is the only exclusivity that creates a spirit of humility. And the only reason why most people don't see it in Christians is because most Christians don't understand they're saved by grace. You're not saved because you're better. You're saved because of grace. That changes the way you talk to someone, even if they are vigorously opposed to the gospel, is that if you always keep in your mind, you know what, this person actually truly might be better than me as a person. I'm sure you know different... People who do not know Christ, who are sometimes kinder than a lot of Christians are. See, we're not Christians because we're kinder than non Christians. We're Christians because of grace, God's grace to us. That's what defines who we are as believers of Christ. Not morally better, but simply shown grace, which makes us more compassionate, more humble and striving for kindness. Not that we reach it, but we strive for it. And it makes us realize that what is going to win the day is the Lord alone. It's not going to be my fine-sounding arguments. It's not going to be because I am kinder or morally better. It's solely the work of Christ, which is why we continually share Christ, the gospel, point people to Jesus over and over again, show them the cross, show them how you are an object of God's wrath, but you rightly deserve judgment, and yet God saved you, not because, as Titus 3.5 says, of righteous things, what we've done, but simply because of God's mercy. See, we never point to our righteousness. We always point to God's mercy. I would imagine if we actually believe John 3.16 was not for people out there, but for me, that that would cause us not to think of others better than ourselves, Christian or non-Christian, because when we see the cross of Christ, we realize I put him there. I'm the one who actually caused him to go to that cross. We're not thinking about all the evil people in the world. We're thinking about me. This week, I was, as I was thinking about John 3.16, and i spent some time praying over my own sins, and uh, I must say it's, it's constant. It is. It, it's, I'm not just saying that to, be, you know, to show some sort of humility. It, it's, it's like the more that I talk about Christ, the more that I talk about wanting to grow in holiness, wanting to pursue the Lord, the more I see the depth of my sin. It just comes with the reality of it. John Piper noted that um, when, he, when it comes to fighting against sexual sin, uh, it's usually he's much more alert to it. Really, it's, it's you, you realize, okay, i got to battle it. And so we put up all these accountability measures. I mean, we literally come up with countermeasures, right, to that sin because it's so debilitating, so evil, so stark. But what about pride? Pride doesn't seem as bad as lust. What about envy? You know, when our neighbor has a new object that we want, a new car, you hear about it, you see what's trending and you say, I want that, a reputation. You want to be popular. And we don't fight that the way we might fight lust, but although that is a lust. We don't fight against anger that way. And anger isn't just rage. Anger might be someone says a word that just bothers you and you feel irritated by it. But irritated is just another euphemism for anger. And perhaps you're overworried, with the market, with the environment, with whether you are going to ever find the right man or woman to marry, whether you're, how you're, some of you high school students are waiting for your college decisions and there's an anxiety. Parents are waiting for that too. It's just part of our hearts. You know, we think, ah, that's, that's not that bad. Lust is bad, you know, against sexual lust. That's when red alert comes in. You know, we got to make sure that we're going to put up all of our defenses. But anger, anxiety, covetousness, that's what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. And respectable sins, they're not that bad. But I tell you, they are the road to evil. It is evil. I've shared this before, but sometimes in the middle of while I'm preaching, I get a thought that comes into my head. That was a great thing you just said. I get that. It happens. Y- you really got them. And I am, while I'm talking, I am fighting and battling. Because if I let it go, it, it becomes, it consumes me. So then, if afterward, I had, after last week's message, some people came up to me and said, you know, I'm, That was the best sermon you've ever preached. I actually heard that a few times. I have to fight at that moment. Now, here's the thing. If no one comes up, I still have to fight. Because then it's, you're terrible. you You don't know what you're saying. People are judging you. It is nonstop. And as I was reflecting this week about these thoughts are coming constantly. If I'm not battling, it consumes me. It does. This is the darkness of my soul, and it is constant. I don't know if any, maybe I'm just darker than the rest of you, but it is a constant battle. The temptations, as you know, the best things you do, preaching, caring, loving, alongside those always comes temptations of pride. Always. You're so good. You're so able. You're so smart. I look around this room. I see a lot of smart people, with advanced degrees. And I know the more, and I someone this week said, why, why don't you go for a, a doctorate? I won't say who it is, but they live in my household. <laughs> and it wasn't my wife or my kids. And uh, I was like, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> you know, it's, It's, oh, I hope she's not watching. (laughs) You know, there, there is a real desire to do such things. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. But I know for me, the more I advance, alongside always comes temptations of pride, envy, jealousy. And it's nonstop. So here's the crazy part. Why, why would I put myself through this? I mean, why not just be? Why believe in Jesus? Because then you don't have to fight like this. Because I tell you that there is an incredible freedom and joy that comes even in the battle. Because if I just let myself go, it's misery. If I let myself go to be angry every time someone said something, little things Well, just anger upon anger, rage upon rage, and I start cutting people off. Well, you bother me this way, so I'm just going to cut you off. I'm going to cut you off. By the time I'm 70, 80 years old, I'm alone, and I'm cantankerous. And all the junk of my heart that that I've never battled with, suddenly it comes out, and it just explodes out, and it just destroys people around me. That is not joy. That is misery. So the battle is always for freedom and joy. It is, and it is worth the fight. Some things are truly worth the fight. This is a fight for your soul, but not just yours, those around you. It impacts people in ways that we never can understand. But this freedom, he who the sun sets free is free indeed. This is why we fight and this is why I'm so thankful for the exclusivity, it is in him because of what Jesus has done. He's done the fighting. He's taken our shame, our disgrace. He's bored on himself so that I can be set free. What are we free to, though? We're free to an eternity with him, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, eternal life, There are two destinies for all people, an eternal life of perishing and eternal life of joy. I really hate the thought of eternal torment. I mean, I have a hard enough time with a paper cut, let alone eternal suffering and torment. When I hear what's happening in Goma to people that we have supported financially, we prayed for, they are literally on the run. Children. Some losing loved ones and their mothers and their grandmothers. God despises that. He hates suffering. We see this in Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Peter says the same thing in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God doesn't take pleasure in our punishment. If God did not punish sin, though, he couldn't be God. God has to punish sin. We cry out for justice when evil things happen in this world. We say evil needs to be punished. If evil had no consequences, evil would be unleashed to no end. It would be chaos. There would be no way for evil to be stopped. So if God who is perfect in his character, in his goodness, but also in his justice, if he were to simply say, ah, sin's no big deal, I tell you that not only would sin and evil run rampant in our world, but God could not be God. So in his character, he has to punish sin. Hence, there is a consequence to that sin, and that sin is eternal torment, or what we call hell. Now, the idea of hell is something that the world hates. It is terrifying. It seems cruel. Why is there a hell? But again, if you understand the logic of who God is as a perfect, just, and holy God, there is no way that he could simply allow any rebellion against him to simply say, it's no big deal. There has to be a consequence In order for freedom to sin to exist, consequence to that sin has to be real or else there is nothing but the purest of evils. So it is not God who causes perishing. It is our insatiable desire to live outside of his law and protection and love that causes the perishing. As I was thinking about hell, I thought about the time that I actually preached from it in... um, in the series on heaven. And so I went back to that sermon, and as I was looking to it, I came to an illustration that I gave, and I know it's sort of weird, but I'm quoting myself on an illustration that I gave during that sermon. I said, we have a pet bunny. Every once in a while, we let him outside, and he gets too excited with his freedom and runs away, and Jack, our son, he scours the neighborhood for him. The freedom probably seems so nice, so good, until or unless he either meets a hawk or a car tire. Then that freedom is nothing but misery. So I gave that sermon when we had Perry, our pet bunny. Well, maybe some of you know we don't have Perry, our pet bunny. He did. We let him out too many times. He enjoyed his freedom too much, and he either met a hawk or a car tire. There is a lot of fun when we can run around and do whatever we want until that fun is done and there's only perishing. And that is a miserable state to be in. Hell is a place where we have said, I don't want God. I care nothing for him. And I don't even believe there is a God. There is a hell. And the consequence of that is to say, well, this is what life is going to be eternally for you. You do not want to face God that way. It has to be something more than that. You are going to face hell. All of us will. I will. There are two ways to face hell. One is you experience hell completely apart from any protection. Or you experience hell because Jesus went to hell for you. That's the only road that we have. Either you experience it yourself fully, or the blood of Christ covers you. And his disgrace on that cross, his shame, his punishment, all of that, if you can just imagine, is hell. Hell is that. So there is hell for all of us. No one escapes hell, not a single person alive. The only question is, are you going to fully experience it on your own, or is Jesus going to experience it for you? John 3.16 says, there is a better road for you, but you must believe him. Or as we see in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You must see that you were dead, and now you have come to life. Until that happens, you are going to face hell all on your own, and it is incredibly dangerous, forever dangerous and fearful. Tack on all of your most miserable fears, all the things that are terrible in this world, and still it cannot compare to that. So I appeal to you first, if you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, do not let this day go by without first coming to him and surrendering. If you have trusted in Christ, there are people you know who are on this road. You must turn. You must tell them. Tell them. Do not just walk by and say, well, I don't have enough time. I'm not, I don't, it's, it's, Tell them the story. Tell them the full story. But they have to believe. But it has to be you trusting first that you deserve it yourself. You know, every one of us deserves hell. And if you don't believe that, then I really question whether you're a Christian or not. I know that's a hard word. But until you get to that place, you will never know how to share the gospel with someone else. Because... You have to realize that you are deserving of that first. But Jesus took that punishment on himself. Every Sunday, we do this. Every Sunday. And it's not because we like crackers and wine. We just want to remind you of what Jesus has done for you. We want to remind you of John 3.16. We want you to not leave this place without the armament and the danger signs and the warnings, but also the joy of saying, when you go out there, remember what Christ has done. The fight is worth it. So when you see him and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enter my rest. There will not be an ounce of regret. So I hope you come. Do not wait, though. There is a perishing with eternal punishment or there's a blessing with joy eternally. Oh, I hope you choose believing in him. You will not perish. You will have eternal life. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider the cross of Christ today, that hell was born on a tree. We who are Rescued and saved and born again, it will take an eternity to really grapple with what happened on that tree on that faithful, fateful day 2,000 years ago. We have so often made the cross too light, as much as we talk about it, as much as we wrestle with how dark that place was, it will never come close to being able to describe it well. But Jesus, we thank you for that cross. We thank you. May we survey what has happened there and see our sin nailed to that tree. It's why we are set free. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. May we never doubt that truth. For those of us, O oh Lord, for those who are struggling with depression, with grievings, with sadness, with rejection, may they look to the cross and see that you were rejected for them. You took on the burdens. You set us free from that. When we come to this table, O oh Lord, may we do so so humbled because we rightly deserve full punishment of sin. But thank you, Lord, for saving someone like me. In Jesus' name we pray.